Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. Leo Colonna, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. This is Nashville is our brand new daily show here at WPLN News. We'll go deeper on the news of the day and bring you perspectives you didn't know you were missing. Join us as we journey into the identity of our city and region. In January, the McMinn County School Board banned Art Spiegelman's Holocaust graphic novel, Mouse. It was a move that made national headlines. Today's show is all about book banning. How are these books banned exactly and why? We'll visit with a student, a librarian, and two authors whose own books have made the banned lists. But first, there's a slew of bills on deck at the state capitol that would limit what books can be taught, read, and discussed in schools, public schools in Tennessee. One of the latest proposals could actually impose criminal penalties on librarians and school boards. Here to explain is WPLN political reporter, Blaze Gainey. Blaze, welcome to This is Nashville. How's it going? It's going good. Well, thank you for being here, my friend. So let's start with the age appropriateness bill proposed by House Representative William Lambert. Break it down for us. So really on the surface, this isn't a book ban or a bad bill. If you just read over it, it just makes sure that books that are age appropriate will be in the libraries at schools and that um, things that are taught and on curriculum are not something that should be in fifth grade isn't or something that should be in high school isn't being taught to fifth graders. Okay, so that's how they're attempting to categorize what is age appropriate and what is not. Yeah, there, there's a I guess that's the big issue is who determines what is age appropriate. It just it sort of leaves it for, I guess, the school board or maybe the, the Department of Education to decide who deems it age appropriate. And and that's the big part is, you know, not every eight-year-old is the same. Mm. And so what's age appropriate for your eight-year-old may be different for the eight-year-old down the street. You know, the real place where you see that difference in maturity is eighth grade. I used to be a teacher. I taught eighth grade. You would have some eighth grade students who were very much eighth grade students. You would have some who were kind of third, fourth, fifth grade with their maturity level. And you had others who were a little bit more mature. Very, very interesting. So one of these bills would ban instructional materials normalizing LGBTQ issues or lifestyles. Tell me, what does that mean? I mean, it it, it means exactly what you said. Okay. In Florida, they call it the don't say gay bill. Now, a lot of the proponents of the bill don't like that because that's not what it says. It says, you know, more so what you said, but it doesn't want people to normalize or promote lesbian, gay bisexual or transgender lifestyles or issues. So essentially, if you're a kid and you go to school, you may have a classmate who identifies as lesbian or gay, but they will have no mention in any of the books or uh, curriculum that you're taught. As if they don't exist. Yes, Hmm. exactly. In in fact, I wrote an article where I I tried to kind of pair this with how black history was first uh, established Black History Month. I mean, it took a while. It took about 50 years of advocating for it. 
And, you know, I don't it's interesting that, you know, this is all coming after uh, about a year after President Biden uh came up with Pride Month, you know, a year, a month to celebrate and notice the accomplishments of the, that same community that they're now saying uh, K through 12 students shouldn't learn about. Mm. Uh, let's talk about the obscenity bill. Now, this one would actually bring misdemeanor charges against public school officials or anybody sharing so-called obscene materials with students. Amanda Smithfield is a librarian at, at Hume Fogg High School. This bill is especially concerning to her. What I worry about is uh, frivolous lawsuits against um, the school district that as taxpayers we have to pay. Um, you know, I worry about what I call shadow banning, that that librarians would be nervous to add books like The Kite Runner, an award-winning book, to their collection. Part of this bill is that um, you take the book off the shelf if, if, if a community member put in a complaint that you take the book for at least 30 days. And I worry about that being uh, weaponized. So is Amanda right to be worried? She she is right to be worried. I mean, exactly what she says is an issue that any any parent, any body in that neighborhood essentially can come up and say, hey, this book is in libraries or is being taught in classrooms. And I want to bring it into question whether or not it should be. They pull it off the shelves. Um, and then, you know, it's up to, I mean, it's just it's, it just takes one parent, you know. And there are so many different parents with children at the school that may want that book taught in school. And that's where it becomes a problem is why does one parent get to decide what is being taught? Now, it it goes to a discussion process and everything where they'll look over and see whether the book is proper. But most likely, you know, what she's saying is she, she thinks they'll fear lawsuits. So they may just say, you know what, you're right. We'll pull the book to, to avoid any lawsuits. To be, to avoid litigation. They're just going to pull the book and not even just contest her. Wow. So I understand that this bill is co-sponsored by more than 40 house Republicans, but is this just really a Republican initiative? I mean, what is the political motivation for this? You know, really the political motivation has very little to do, I believe, with what's being taught in schools and more so about being able to campaign and say that they are protecting your children from obscene, harmful, or pornographic material. Hmm. And apparently this won or helped win an election in Virginia and so now they're they're saying, hey, well, you know, like I said, Florida has a, a don't say gay bill um, and other bills like this are in, in multiple states to try and give this idea that we are protecting. Uh, we're keeping the innocence of your child mm. alive. And you think that'd be the job of the parents. But um, I digress. What's next for this story? You know, sadly, I mean, this is most, like you said, 40 um, House Republicans are co-sponsored on here. It's most likely going to pass. The The question is whether or not it'll end up in some sort of legal battle of somebody saying, well, you know, this gives too much power to parents. Um, and also, some librarians have said that there are already pathways to have books taken off of shelves. I don't want to use the word banned because... It, not not in all cases are the books banned. Sometimes they, what librarians were saying is they can just move it over to a different section in the library that's only allowed for 
students are at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you a personal question. You're a father of two. You've got a, a one-year-old and you've got a little girl who's in school. So when you're covering stories like this and you look into it, how do you feel about, you know, the, the materials, the reading materials, the instruction materials that your daughter may be exposed to now when she's at school? Well, I, I want I would want my children, I do want my children to learn what really does take place in America. And, you know, if, if they're not allowed to read books that show, I mean, I, I, it's a list of books, about 850 books that have to do with Black Lives Matter, that have to do with LGBTQ, the Holocaust. I want my kids to learn about all of those things. And so it hurts uh, to know that there are legislators that are trying to take those things out of class. It all, it reminds me a lot of the critical race theory mm. um, type mindset of we don't want to teach anything that is hurtful or harmful to our kids. Uh, the sponsor of the bill about LGBTQ issues not being discussed in school says that constituents have come up to him and said that he believes that the, this indoctrinates their kids, mm. which is you know, really wild because I've read books on several things and I became a reporter and I, I've read books on, I mean, mass murderers. I don't, I don't, I don't, I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad. And critical race theory is a topic for another day that we will definitely get into more. Many thanks. That is Blaze Gady, political reporter for WPLN. Blaze, thank you, my man. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll meet a librarian, an advocate, and a student to get their thoughts on banning books. We'll pick up this discussion in a moment. This is Nashville. Welcome back to This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. Every Thursday, we're taking time to read the comments so you don't have to. It's time for At Us. Yes, seriously. I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville, on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN, and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now to tell us a little bit more about this special segment is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cadden. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. How's it going? It is lovely. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> so, what can listeners expect from At Us? Well, I want our listeners to know that uh, we're all over digital media and that if you send a message to us, whether on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatnot, you are actually connecting with a real person. And that real person behind the keyboard is me. And the reason why we're doing this is because This Is Nashville is a community-driven show. And so it only makes sense that, you know, we listen to the community. We just want to hear feedback from people, good, bad, what we missed, what our listeners did or didn't like, and, you know, what their ideas are for future episodes. Mm -hmm. I love it. So what kind of messages are we asking people to leave us this week? Well, since this show is new and since you're a recent transplant, I wanted to do something a little fun with this. So I'm asking our listeners to share their advice for Nashville newbies. Ooh. 
Okay. On our website, there's a little button that you can click on to leave voice messages. Um, so you can say whatever you want. Just don't curse and definitely don't say something you wouldn't want your mom to hear on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only been a week since we launched, but we've already gotten some buzz online. We got an email after our first episode, our guest, Albert Bender, who is Cherokee and also a historian. He shared some numbers on how large the native population was in what he called ancient Nashville. The listener said those numbers were grossly inaccurate. Yeah, we were grateful to receive that email and like it really got us thinking. So because of it, we are actually working on researching for a full episode on our city and region's indigenous origins, um, you know, just to see who really lived in Middle Tennessee long before we showed up. Yes. Okay, so stay tuned for that. All right. Now, middle school teacher Jeremiah Thomas Wooten tweeted us at This Is Nashville last week because we forgot to mention that Ginny Poopa Walker is a current Metro Nashville Public School Board member when we were talking about the new funding formula. Yeah, that was an oversight on our part. Apologies, you know, human mm -hmm. error. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to clarify, Poopa Walker was elected to the Metro School Board in 2018, and she currently represents District 8, which stretches from West End to about Percy Priest Lake area. Um, and her seat is currently up for election this year, but she's not running. Okay. Now, there was one guest from our debut episode that really stood out to our listeners, and I can understand why. It was Jalen Hayes, who is a senior at Big Picture High School. One listener emailed to say that it was refreshing to hear from a high school student. Yeah, just to harken back to our debut episode a little bit, Jalen was very candid about criticizing the gentrification that's going on in Nashville right now and how black families are being pushed out of the city. Um, one Twitter user who goes by Yandy reached out to us and said that they agreed with what Jalen said and wrote, quote, as a native Nashvilleian, I finally feel heard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's definitely one of the perspectives that we hope to include in the show. Not just, you know, people who are new to Nashville, but definitely people who have been calling this place home since the moment of their birth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just to let listeners behind the scenes a little bit, uh, you actually spoke to Jalen back in January when we were recording um, our pilot episodes. I did. Uh, since one of the goals of This Is Nashville is getting to know our community and neighbors better, maybe we should play some of your conversation with Jalen. You know what? Let's do it. So we talked to Jalen about his hopes for his community and his reflections on violence and community resilience. But let me tell you what. We were not going to end our convo without asking Jalen about his passions and goals. Here we go. So tell me real quick, what brings you happiness in creating and sharing your music? Well, what brings me happiness is to, one, I've been able to express myself through my music. Um, I have finally have understand the true meaning of what art is within music. I have always enjoyed music and have loved music, but now that I'm actually making my own, I truly understand what it means to take time um, to listen to it, to enjoy it, to digest it. And... Um, Honestly, just sharing my story through my songs um, and as well as the song that is Moon, <laughs> it talks about taking um, a special young lady on a date. Um, honestly, just a simple date without being provocative or inappropriate. Um, just still being in the mindset of teenagers. Like, let's have fun. Let's talk about um, what you're interested in instead of being so inappropriate. Yeah. 
Yeah, just some nice um, let's get to know each other kind of old right. school. Well, <laughs> you know, we're going to play this song out on our way. Why don't you give us a nice little introduction? And thank you so much for being with us, Jalen. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. This is Moon by Jalen Hayes. That's Moon by our new best friend, Jalen Hayes. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon, for that roundup. Get in touch with us anytime on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know how we're doing at This Is Nashville. Okay, back to today's show. Before the break, we got a taste of a slew of bills under consideration at the state capitol that would ban or restrict books and other classroom materials. One could actually bring misdemeanor charges against school officials, namely librarians for showing so-called obscene materials to students. Sonia Thomas leads the parents' education advocacy group Propel Nashville. She's also the mother of four. Here's what she had to say about what's going on at the Capitol. Libraries have been a, a, a safe place in schools and in communities for many years. Uh, I can remember taking all my children to the library to get their library cards, right? I, I just wonder if this bill is actually identi identifying a real problem. Is this a real problem? I'd like to propose this question to my next guest. Lisa Bubert is a children's librarian from the Madison branch of the Nashville Public Library. Lisa, is the problem that this bill addressing a real problem in your experience as a librarian? Hey, Khalil, it's, uh, it's good to be here. <laughs> um, you know, I will say, I'll kind of reiterate uh, what was mentioned earlier, which is that there is already a process that libraries have in place um, for evaluating materials that we want to add to our collections and um, reconsidering materials that we've added that maybe we want to recatalog or we do want to remove from the collection. Um, so I have to say, I, I do somewhat agree with Sonia that I, you know, this bill is kind of um, looking at a problem that already has a process for how we resolve it. Mm -hmm. Now, we're hearing a lot about school boards banning books and these potential new laws, but I'm really curious. How does this or does any of this affect your work as a librarian? I mean... Does it affect my work? I mean, yes, it's going. It's going to. Um, it's going to make me think long and hard about how I do my job every day. It's kind of what Amanda was saying earlier. She talked about shadow banning, self censorship. Um, it's something that librarians are always aware of. We're we're always um, trying to make sure that we're not engaging in any kind of self censorship. Self censorship is where, you know, you you don't put a book on display if you don't agree with it, or you don't add something to a collection because you personally don't agree with it. Um, that's something that, you know, we learn in school that we're very wary of. It's, you know, explicitly what we try to protect ourselves against. And I do worry just like Amanda worried earlier that um, with this, you know, with this bill kind of overseeing the work that librarians have already been trained to do that we have been doing you know, for years, um, that this will just put more pressure to 
kind of give in to pressure and mm. self-censor when we shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So let's say someone thinks the library should take a book off the shelves. What's the process like? Mm -hmm. um, it is called a request for reconsideration. So, um, and again, each library system is going to have their own process, but specifically here at the Nashville Public Library, um, we do have what's called a request for reconsideration. So if a parent or any any member of the public has um, a concern about a book or a material, um, they can bring it to the library's attention. Uh, they will be required to fill out a form telling us, you know, if they represent themselves, an organization, if they represent a group, if they're a resident, um, they'll tell us about the book or the material. It'll give them a chance to kind of explain what it is about the material that, you know, isn't isn't working for them, doesn't feel appropriate to them, um, just so we can kind of understand where they where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. And then when they do fill out that form, they also get a copy of our collection development policy. The National Public Library has a very thorough collection development policy that explains why we purchase what we purchase, um, why we make things available. They also get a copy of the Library Bill of Rights, <laughs> which is from the American Library Association, and it's about the freedom to read. They also get a freedom to read statement so they can get some background on that. Um, but they fill that information out, and it goes up to a committee that then looks at the request and decides um, what to do based on collection development and, and the situation at hand. Now, this may seem like a frivolous question, but I think you should at least mm -hmm. have a library card before you should go to the library to begin this request for reconsideration. That's not one of the requirements, is it? It is not. And I mean, you don't have to have a library card to use the library. You don't, I mean, you have to have a library card, obviously, to check books out and, util, you know, to use materials, take them home with you, things like that. But you don't have to have a library card to come into the library or use the computer or anything like that. But of course, I mean, I would encourage anybody mm -hmm. <laughs> to get a library card. You know, I mean, the, the, a person who is so engaged that they, you know, that they want to bring something like this to a librarian's attention. That's somebody who is, to, that just tells me that that's a person who's very engaged in their public library. And I mean, that's a good thing. Um, so, yeah. 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 This is Nashville. I'm Khalil e. Colonna. If you're just joining us, today's show is all about banned books. We've been talking about the how and the why of book bans. Now let's talk about the resistance. My next guest is Terry Vo. Board President of API, the Asian Pacific Islander nonprofit organization of Middle Tennessee. Terry, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much, Kalil. So great to be here today. Really great to have you both with us. Now, API is working on a book drive focusing on AAPI authors, and I understand you were motivated to organize this because of recent efforts to ban books. Is that right? Yes, and, 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 and also into um, the response to anti-Asian hate that our community has been experiencing. Now, Yurina Yoshikawa is a fellow board member at API. She's also a mom. She worries that book banning bills could disproportionately impact books written by authors of color. Let's listen. <laughs> There's this quote from one of my favorite movies, You've Got Mail, where one of the characters says, we are what we read. And, you know, I think back to the books that I was reading when I was a kid and how, um, how much they informed me about the world. But, you know, back then in the 90s and stuff, a lot of the books I was reading, they were 
a lot of white stories. And that kind of became a lot of my worldview. I want to imagine a future where my kids can, can read books um, featuring characters that look like them. Terry, you and Yorina are both working on a book drive through API to donate works by Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander authors to Metro schools. Tell me more about that. Yes, I am so honored in partnership with the Greater Nashville Chinese Association and the Nashville Chinese School. We want to bring books featuring, you know, API authors and stories to MNPS. So what's really amazing is just like Yorina said, you know, we want API students to feel seen and heard through the books, and also for non-API students to learn more about the history, customs, achievements, and just cultural understanding of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So for our community, you know, there's two ways um, that everyone can uh, participate. One, you can make a donation, or two, you can bring a children's book that is by um, or illustrated by an API author to one of our upcoming events, whether or dropping them off at the National Chinese School. And I've got, of course, those events that I can tell you specifically. Now, why is this so important to you, Terry? Oh my goodness, uh, great question. This book drive is so important to me because I, I mean, as a child, I went to the library with my dad um, and with my siblings. And I definitely, as an adult, and reading children's books about my own culture, you know, about my own Vietnamese upbringing because they didn't have them when I was little. So, you know, for my nieces and for my nephew growing up in today, I want them to be able to have books that I did not have access to. And for um, all of us to just have a deep and richer connection. Um, for example, you know, when every, every Lunar New Year, when we eat, um, it's called Ban Chung. I never understood or knew why, right? And reading my, you know, Vietnamese children's story uh, and learning about the king and the princess, it was really important to me, you know, to have that connection. So I want that for um, all API students. And for those who aren't, you know, if they go and have lunch with their friend during Lunar New Year, that they have an understanding and connection to the food too. Mm -hmm. To bridge cultural divides and to help us understand more about our own culture and others. I love it. Now I'd like to bring in Christina Amaya Sandoval. Christina, you are a high school student and a library aide. I mean, these laws are supposedly protecting you. Tell me, what are your thoughts when you hear about lawmakers looking to restrict what books students have access to? Lisa, I'm gonna I'm gonna to go to you, Christina. We're gonna work on your connection really, really quickly. But you know, what what do you think, Lisa, about this? About these laws that are supposed to be protecting students? It do you feel like they are? You know, <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. We're in such a you know a strange, scary world right now. You know, when when people are scared, when there's a lot of instability, we look to stabilize in any way we can. And a lot of times we look to stabilize, you know, the world for our kids any way we can. And it's natural to want to wrap children up in bubble wrap so that they never have to experience anything awful mm. <laughs> ever in the world. You know, I mean, that, that's everyone's impulse. We want to protect our children. But, I mean, children do live in the real world. Children are going to come in contact with, 
you know, awful situations. They're going to either directly or indirectly experience violence, abuse, all of those things that we wish didn't exist in the world. It's, it's going to happen. It's just a part of reality. And the thing about having access to books and materials that handle these topics, you know, in a, in a safe manner is that the child can, can come in contact with those things at their own pace. A book allows a child to read and engage on a topic at their own pace. Um, you know, children do put books down if it becomes too much for them. Um, but in real life, if they're come across with the situation, they can't just, you know, click their fingers and remove themselves from a situation as much as they want to. So for me, um, it's a way it, it is protecting our children in order to make these materials available to them so that they can um, learn at a self-paced way. They can learn with the safety of a trusted grown up. You know, a parent can certainly read a book with their child and, and talk about these topics together. A book is a great um, doorway into, you know, creating that space for a conversation. Now, I'm, um, I'm curious, Lisa, yeah. Terry talked about wanting representation in literature. How does that factor into your role as a librarian? Well, at the public library, I mean, I, I have so many different types of families that come to my children's uh, area here at Madison. And these families want to see books on display on the shelves that mirror their experience. Um, just case, case in point, just this morning, it, it was perfect timing because I, you know, it's like, oh, I just needed this reminder of why we do this. I have one family that comes to the library um, that they're in a, it's a same sex couple um, and their daughter has coming, has been coming to my story time for, for years and lovely family. And, um, you know, we had a book that came to the library that um, showcased, you know, a same sex couple, a same sex family. And um, she was able, that, that child was able to see that book, pick it up and say, look, it's, it's us, mm -hmm. it's us in this book. Yeah. And that, that is worth, that is worth so much. That is, that is why I do the job right there. That's beautiful. So our producer Rose Gilbert met up with a banned book club in Franklin that actually assembled after Mouse was banned in McMinnon County. Now, Lisa, I mean, how effective are these book bans anyway? Well, if you ask me, they're effective in making people wanting want to read them. Mm. <laughs> you know, when you when you forbid something from a child, you know the child's just going to want to pick it up and read it. So, yeah. um, you know, so I how effective are they? I you know, I can't say on a case by case basis, but that is my experience. As soon as as soon as you try to tell a child or a teen that they can't do something, especially a teenager, the first thing they're going to want to do is go out and you know, find a way to do it. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I, rem I remember the 80s. Books. I remember the 80s. Groups <laughs> yeah. like NWA, 2 Live Crew, people went out and bought the albums <laughs> after there was an ABC special warning us against it. Now, that was Lisa Bubert. She was joined by Terry Vaux. I want to thank you both for being on the show and thank you for the work that you're doing. Christina Sandoval is going to join us later on in the show. So hang with us through the break. We're taking, we're talking about banned books, and we've heard from librarians, parents, and a student. After the break, we talked to two authors who've had their books banned. Stick with us. This is Nashville.
Welcome back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we're talking banned books. We've been visiting with a librarian and a student. Now, we're going to hear from a few authors themselves whose books have made the banned lists. I'd like to welcome Nashville writer Greg Howard and Kiese Lehman, author of the award-winning memoir, Heavy, who is in town tonight to speak at the porch. Thank you both for joining us. Kiese, I want to start with you. Heavy is banned in Missouri. We've been talking about the process of banning books, but I'm curious, like, as an author, how did you find out that your book has been banned? Uh, thank you all for having me. I, I, I found out this time because one of the librarians uh, reached out to me <laughs> under the cloak of anonymity and, and let me know what was about to happen. Um, she told me that um, The Bluest Eye and uh, Jason Reynolds um, and a few other books were being banned and Heavy was one of them. Um, and she said that if I fought back, you know, just make sure that I didn't really say her name. So mm. that's how I found out. What was it like getting that call that your book had been banned? What was it like for you when you heard that? Day? I felt bad for I felt bad for the librarian. Um, I felt sort of heartbroken because you know a lot of us on these banned book lists, you know, we we went to school when uh, like books that really valued our identity were de facto banned. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So we, we wrote a lot of these books in responses to like the de facto banning of books. So it, it hurt to know that like a book that I created, which is essentially about parental child relationships, would be banned. But it also felt good. Anytime you're on a list with, with Toni Morrison, you gotta feel good. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. but 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 it's also but I also just wanna say like I, I played a lot of sports in high school and college and, and like banning Morrison would almost be like banning young basketball players from you know learning from jordan you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like morrison teaches us so much about language but also teaches us so much about the act of being human i, I actually just could not believe that they that they that they banned the bluest eye even more than heavy i was just like shocked that they banned the bluest eye now greg your books middle school's a drag and the whispers are banned in texas tell me how did you find out about that well, I found out through my Google alerts <laughs> that I have, you know, that kind of tell me what's going on with me and my books. But, um, you know, one of my books, Middle School's a Drag, I actually heard about from a school board director in Pennsylvania who told me that she had learned about my book on Fox News on the Laura Ingram show. And I'm thinking, mm. what in the world, you know, is my book doing on that show? But uh, apparently they did a, a segment about, you know, books that should not be in schools and my books were on a list that a teacher recommended. And before I know it, they're showing my, the cover of Middle School's a Drag and talking about how terrible it is that it's on this recommended reading list. So, you know, we find out in a, in a variety of ways about these things. Now, our last guest mentioned that, you know, you tell people that they can't do something, particularly teenagers, they then tend to flock to it like moths to a flame. Did either of you see a tick in purchases or sales of your books once they made the banned book list? And particularly for you, Greg, it made the Laura Ingram show. Did you see a jump? Uh, yes, I did. And that uh, school board director who reached out to me said that she's so glad she saw it on Laura Ingram's show, which she was watching, she said, for reconnaissance about book banning, because <laughs> she has recommended it that it go into all the middle school and high schools in her district. And so, you know, these things do have a way of getting into the hands of people, of kids, especially. And Lisa said something earlier, I believe she, she mentioned, you know, 
when you when you take these books off the shelves, it's it's disheartening because you're you're erasing these kids, but you're also taking yourself out of the conversation. These are very productive conversations you could be having with your child. But if your child goes around your back to you know get a hold of something that's been banned and you don't know about it, you've just removed yourself from that conversation. Now I know this is a deeply personal topic for both of you because you each of you write about your identities. You know, I have to I have to wonder how that makes finding out that your book has been banned, does it make it all more intense? Kiesi? Uh, yeah, it definitely makes it intense. You know what I mean? I, I used fictive techniques to write a real memoir about my relationship with my mother. Um, and, and so for parents, fathers, parental figures, and mothers to, to decide, probably without reading the book, that their child should not read the book says a lot. But one of the things that I want to make sure we say is that what it says is like they're afraid of what these books will do to their children's understanding and view of them as parents. Not strict, not simply what the, it might do to their child. And I'm, I'm very clear on that. You know what I mean? Like I think they want to use some of our books to hide from yeah. their, their children. And you know, beyond being sad for the children, it it, it makes me pity pity the. Uh, the parents a lot. Greg? I agree. And also, you know, I write books for and about uh, LGBTQ kids, uh, but mainly because when I was a kid, I never saw myself in a book that I got from the school library or really anywhere. I never saw another gay kid in the South, you know, and so that made me feel very othered. It made me feel like there was something wrong with me. Uh, if I had had access to books that I could just see myself in, it would have, you know, really helped me and kept me out of some dark places in my mind. So yes, when some, when I, my goal now is to write books that I wish I'd had as a kid and then for people to be yanking them off the shelves, they're basically saying that if you don't live within the dominant discourse in our country, that your experience doesn't matter your story doesn't matter. And I just want to tell kids that they're seen and they're represented and that they have hope. This is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We've been visiting with Nashville writer Greg Howard and author Kiese Lehman, who's in town tonight to speak at The Porch. Both have written deeply personal books that have made the band list. High school junior Christina Sandoval is with us. Christina, okay, do you like to read about people? whose lives and experiences might really be different from your own. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, yes, I feel that books connect me to experiences that I've never experienced personally, especially The Kite Runner, which is a book that we're reading in my AP English Literature class. What's, that, what's it like reading that book? Talk to me. Oh, I, I, I honestly almost have no words to describe what it's like because everything just happened so quick. We saw the situation in Afghanistan and like our soldiers, you know, getting withdrawn from there. I mean, it's, I don't know, it's just heartbreaking, you know, to have an Afghan American novelist, Khaled Hosseini, to write this book, which is based on some of his personal, you know, experiences and to see how how Afghanistan was like before war and sadness and poverty and I feel like sometimes we see personally when I see the news which is not as often 
we just see Afghanistan now. We don't see the Afghanistan before. And we discussed that in class as well, how, you know, women were just like, just like us, like had freedom and stuff like that before, you know, everything else happened. Mm-hmm. Now, Kiese, your memoir, memoir, Heavy, is all about the love between a parent and their child and reckoning with that in a really open and honest way. Some of the parents who want to ban certain books would say that they love their kids and don't want them exposed to things that they feel may hurt them. What do you say to that? Uh, I, I would say that we all we all are very selective about what we choose to protect our young people from. Do you know what I mean? Like there's certain like I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. Like I, I to protect my young person, I might be like, you can't drink the water. Mm. If you're willing to say that a book that explores the rigorous love between a mother and a child and that child's relationship with their body and that child's relationship with ironically education is hurtful. I think you're actually dissing the teacher and the potential librarian who could help a child through that book. And of course you're dissing yourself. So, you know, whatever you, if, if that's what it means to protect your child, that's what it means to protect your child. Um, but I would just argue that a lot of these books are created out of like a deep rigorous love for children and parents. Greg, I want to pose the same question to you. Yeah, I I totally agree because, you know, I have yet to meet a a middle school, a middle grade or a YA author that has any kind of nefarious intentions in mind. Uh, We all want uh, to help kids. We all want kids to feel seen and represented. And, you know, like Casey said, I, you know, my book, The Whispers, which is also about my relationship with my mother. And when someone, you know, wants to, kind of douse those feelings in a child and it really causes kids to close up I know I did I closed up and you know by the time I was 12 years old I I was starting to think about death a lot and I don't want kids today to go to that dark place I want to offer them hope and their happily ever afters you guys are making me want to write a memoir about my relationship with my mom I think I'll call it what type (laughs) of an allowance is this um, but okay. So Christina, is there anything that you would like to ask Greg or Kiese? Um, yeah, of course. Well, what do you, what do y'all think is going to happen if this Tennessee bill gets passed? And I know it's like different because I'm a student, but y'all are authors. So as from an author's perspective, how do you think that's going to affect us, our, especially like our learning environment and our, you know, growth, growth as students? Well, I'll, I'll say real quickly that I, I fear it's going to do um, what Lisa mentioned earlier. It's going to cause librarians to kind of start, you know, maybe put not putting something on the shelves that they would have just because they're they might be afraid for their job or you know and then that's again that's limiting access for the kids when I, when i spoke to the tennessee association of school librarians they were very concerned about this and like what do i do i, I want to help the kids but i also need my job so I, I really fear um for what's what kind of position it's going to put librarians in yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think I, if you look at that bill, you look at the CRT bill in Mississippi, where I'm from. I mean, if we're going to be honest, I mean, you know, they're, they're dedicated librarians and teachers who are going to get these books into the classrooms, whether they're banned or not. And I think what's going to happen is the, these dedicated librarians and teachers are going to get fired. And ultimately, I think young people are going to organize 
against their teachers being fired for um, attempting to show them different kinds of reality that their parents want. That that that's a that's a pessimistic, cynical, and optimistic look at what's going to happen. But I think it's going it doesn't end until students and teachers and primarily students really start organizing and taking their education into their own hands. And sadly, we probably aren't going to see that until some of their favorite teachers get fired. Christina, you have another question for him. Well, all this is kind of feels like political. You know, I remember reading Kaffir Boy when I was in the ninth grade. And that book talked about sexual abuse. And some of my classmates had a really difficult time addressing that. And it led to some parents making complaints. But the book wasn't banned. This was also, and I'm dating myself, this was 1988. And the political our nation, national political environment was not as tenuous and explosive as it is today. So I want to ask all three of you, how much do politics play a role in the push to ban certain books? Greg? I feel like it plays a huge role. Um, and maybe that's my, my pessimistic uh, attitude. But, you know, again, uh, trying to fire up a base, you know, by giving uh, the base, the meat and potatoes of, you know, pr like uh, protecting their children, like he said, you know, uh, I think a lot of it is driven by politics and not by protection of the kids. And what's what, what I'd like to say is that when you take these books off the shelves, you're not protecting kids, you're actually doing great harm to kids, especially the ones that are othered and marginalized and are at risk. You're taking away their connection to a broader world. Kiese. I disagree with, I just completely uh, um, agree with Greg. It, it, it's obviously political, but it's also just very, um, just like team oriented, right? Like my team over here doesn't believe in certain books. So I'm gonna just try to take books out of out of out of the library and make sure that these ban that these books that I'm effectively banning get a lot of publicity. So so like I, again, I think people are playing politics with their children's lives, but again, because I'm 47, like I would encourage them not to play politics with their own lives, right? Mm. Like there's still time for them to see themselves clearly. There's still time for them to to commit to, to living in a world that's different than the world they grew up in. And I think some of these books can help. Um, so so again, like I, I wish they wouldn't burden and harm their their their, their young people, their their children. But I also as a human, just wish they wouldn't be so committed to harming and 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 and, and terrifying themselves. Now, KSA, you're a teacher. You teach at college. I'm curious about your perspective on it from that point of view. Just thinking about younger folks like Christina. <sighs> Yeah, you know, th this is a part of the conversation I think is hard. I mean, you know, to teach rigorous books, like you have to work really hard in that classroom and you got to spend a lot of time talking to students outside of the classroom about those books. But that is precisely the kind of classrooms that a lot of us wanted to grow up in. I grew up in a, in a, in a majority black city and town where the word racism was never uttered. The word sexism was, was never uttered. The word queer, the word gay was never uttered by teachers. You know, poverty, that word was never uttered, but those words defined and described the lives of everyone in those classrooms. So again, if these older people want to harken back to yesterday, we have to, on one hand, ask ourselves why, but much more importantly, we have to organize and make sure that they stop harming young people and really stop harming themselves. Now, Greg, I'm curious for your reflections on that. Like, do you relate to this from your memories of school? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I 
like I say, it would have changed my life. It would have changed my development as a kid had I had access to books like this. And access is, is the key word here because some of these people trying to ban books will say, well, they can go get these books, you know, on the internet or on Amazon, or they can go get them at Barnes and Noble. We don't want them in our schools. But A, you know, there are kids out there who don't have access to the internet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's our privilege to assume that all kids do. There are also kids who don't have the means to go to a Barnes and Noble or an independent bookstore and buy a book. Um, so for some of these kids, the school is the, the only place that they have the opportunity to have access to these, to these books. I'm wondering, you know, as a former educator, Los Angeles, I taught at a high school for kids who got kicked out of high school, what people call a continuation type of school. And one of the textbooks I used for history, U.S. history, was Howard Zinn's famous book, A People's History of the United States. And I'm wondering now that if I would be allowed to use that if I were a teacher these days. What do you guys think? Do you think books like that, like that are telling of a different, deeper story of our own story of America, do you think that that would be banned? I think it depends on, on obviously, in my experience, it depends on the school, school board, geographically where you are. But the importance of like a book like Zen's book, for example, is again, like, like we're creating like textured literature, not, you know, we're not creating math books. We're not teaching people like how to do one plus one equals two. Like I'm actually, and I think Greg is doing it. We're giving folks these books with the hope that they wrestle with them and ultimately do what you do with the best books, which is sometimes disagree. Like give your children the opportunity to get in there and disagree, you know, and feel affirmed. But I just feel like this idea that we are indoctrinating and, and maybe we are, if indoctrinating means we're trying to encourage people to be critical, loving, uh, tender adults, okay, that's indoctrination. But I also just think we forget that kids are going to push back against whatever you put in front of them. That's right. Allow them some space to push back against these books too. That's what we have to do. That's Kiese Lehman, who's speaking tonight at the porch. Thank to you and Greg Howard and Christina Amaya Sandoval. You are going to be back on the show. I promise you that. Thank you all for joining us. And thanks to you all for joining us this hour. We've had some really nice weather lately, but heads up, Saturday could drop as low as 20 degrees. Yes. Tomorrow, we'll talk about cold weather sheltering and what the city's been doing to help out our unhoused neighbors. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back to this episode at WPLN.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. At us, people. Trust me, at us. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation does not end here. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.